Welcome to another episode of Evidence into Action, the EEF podcast, which brings together expert researchers from fields of education with school leaders and teachers exploring those interesting, important areas of evidence in practice. And today's episode is looking at vocabulary instruction and making all of those important connections to reading and how vocabulary links to curriculum. We've got the privilege of speaking to a usual array of brilliant experts. So first, we'll speak to Professor Jesse Ricketts, who's Director of Language and Reading Acquisition Research Group at the Department of Psychology at Royal Holloway, University of London. Then we'll speak to a teaching colleague, Marcus Jones, who is Literacy Lead at Huntington Research School. And he's also an English teacher and ex-colleague of mine, um, a brilliant um, brilliant teacher and colleague. And now I'll now introduce my co-host, um, who now works at the EF, um, Alex Reynolds. Alex, talk a little bit about your role um, and your background. Thank you, Alex. Uh, yeah, Alex here, other Alex. Um, I am the EF's Literacy Content Specialist. So my job is to think about the research and the guidance reports that we've recently published around literacy and to think specifically about what this looks like when we start to take it live into classrooms, to share different voices from across the system and to think about creating some content which will be really useful and practical for leaders and educators in their different settings. Before joining the EF, I was Director of Primary Learning for a Trust in the North of England and Acting Head Teacher of a Primary School in West Yorkshire. And um, so I'm, I'm also really excited to share some reflections from my own practice as a teacher and as a school leader based upon what the, the brilliant um, Jesse and Marcus have to share with us today. Thanks, Alex. And, and in terms of vocabulary, that's one of the areas in the coming year um, that we'll look at exploring uh, and taking some of those recommendations and vocabulary spans, um, recommendations from early language in our Preparing for Literacy guidance through primary school and into secondary school. So it's a recommendation that pretty much transcends phase. It's something that we recognise is teachable across all key stages in schools. So um, my background being secondary, your being, yours being primary and, and, and the other expertise, um, we should cover a lot of interesting ground. Uh, so great to have you uh, as co-host again. I'm really delighted to introduce our first guest, Professor Jesse Ricketts. Uh, Jesse, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your research background? Yes, um, Alex and Alex, it's really nice to be here. Um, so my background is in psychology. I trained as an undergraduate in psychology and the research that I do takes a kind of psychology based approach, I guess. Um, but I've always been interested in research questions that can be applied to education. So that's always been a, a really big motivating force for me. Uh, most of my research has focused on the interface between spoken language and written language, I guess, in some way, shape or form. But I've been particularly interested in looking at reading and reading development in children and in adolescents, and also vocabulary knowledge and the relationship between reading and vocabulary. So some of the work that I've done has looked at how very important vocabulary is in the development of reading in various different ways. Um, but I've also been really interested in once we learn to read, 
what does that give us? What does that do for us? Of course, we can enjoy reading text. We can learn from text. Um, and actually, reading provides a really important opportunities for learning new vocabulary because, of course, the vocabulary that we read is quite different from the vocabulary that we hear. Um, so that's a, uh, those are uh, the things that kind of motivate me in research. And more recently, I've been particularly focused on reading in secondary students, just because I think we don't know that much about what's going on there. Yeah. Um, and clearly, there is a need to know a little bit more. Yeah, that, that's I'm really excited to explore lots of aspects of that. So vocabulary focus of this podcast but its relationship with reading I think is what we'll we'll spend a lot of time exploring and just to start on vocabulary so it feels like it's a really salient kind of aspect of schooling academic language it seems to feature in national and international policy and of course research why do you think it is why does it stand out why is it salient what what's your take on that when we're thinking about reading and in the context of reading, I think, well, there's a number of ways of thinking about that question, but I think one way of thinking about it is to say that vocabulary is clearly really important for reading. Um, I, some people often uh, describe vocabulary as being the building blocks for reading, and that's certainly true. Uh, it provides a building block for spoken language and a building block for reading. Uh, and in my work, I've looked at it in, in a few different ways. Um, clearly, when we're thinking about reading for comprehension, having good vocabulary knowledge is really important. It provides kind of crucial background knowledge for the text that we're encountering. And also, as we're reading a text, we need to have a good sense of all of the words in that text to fully understand it. And I think that's really important. What's also important, of course, is that vocabulary knowledge is kind of like the knowledge base for listening to a word that's for producing a word, um, for reading a word, for writing a word. It provides that kind of stored knowledge in memory that we draw on every time we encounter a word. Um, and so it is kind of crucial. That's not to say that other things aren't also really important, but it, it is crucial and it's almost a bit like the first step, the first potential barrier or the, the first um, stepping stone into speaking and listening and reading and writing. And I wonder whether that's why we focused on it. I think there are also other ways of thinking about this issue. And I think there is something about vocabulary that's inherently kind of more tractable or understandable or addressable yeah. or yeah. something like that. Concrete or, yeah. More concrete. And I think, I mean, we do use the word vocabulary and we do think about vocabulary in different ways. And, and you and I have talked about that before, but I think, uh, that we all have rough, a, a kind of overlapping sense of what vocabulary is and what it means to know about words and what it means to teach people about words. And I think that is really helpful. As soon as we get into the realm of thinking about more complex aspects of language, for example, uh, like grammar and syntax and even, even morphology, actually, just a, a kind of small extension from basic word knowledge, I think things become much more complex and that just becomes harder for people to Get, get a handle yeah. on it. There's a, both a benefit to that, I think, that vocabulary is salient, does grab people's attention. It is something that's tractable and you can understand it and do things in the classroom, potentially. Mm -hmm. But then also there's a danger, isn't there? Because whenever you have something that stands out amongst the rest, then people can isolate it and focus a bit too much on that to the expense of other things. So there's kind of pluses and minuses, I, I suspect. 
I guess we do need to remember that teaching vocabulary knowledge is quite difficult and often takes quite a lot of, of effort and time and resource. Yeah, and I think perhaps some of the some of the consequences of a school focus on it, you know, kind of the mere familiarity of you've got a word list, for example, or you've got a knowledge organiser which features 10 key words and, and then you present them to your class and, and, and maybe they do a quiz on them at the end of the week. The, there is a kind of potential of a superficial knowledge there that isn't then applied to writing it isn't well understood it isn't necessarily connected so I think I think a lot of schools have met that challenge of okay vocabulary feels very manageable so we might start there oh but it's a bit more complex and and we're not seeing pupils develop that knowledge in the ways we might expect um so I, I think that feels like a live challenge for a lot of schools that they know you know, kind of reading itself is complex, but vocabulary teaching is probably a bit more complex than than we might give it credit for. Uh, Alex, I'm going to pick up on the on the reading aspect. I've been struck by what you've said, Jesse, around how language learning and vocabulary is not just a thing to be taught, but it also helps to shape neurological functioning and how we process things. So, so I'm wondering whether you could talk a little bit more about how vocabulary helps and supports or perhaps limits those different cognitive processes involved in successful reading comprehension. You've already talked a little bit about language comprehension. I'm wondering whether you could speak to a little bit of your research around how vocabulary supports word reading. You need to know most of the words in any given text to really understand that text and that that's really important. And I think um, that normally seems quite clear, but actually vocabulary also has a really important role to play in, in reading words. Um, and I guess what it does is it provides the kind of knowledge base that we use um, to read words. What I tend to do when I think about word knowledge is I tend to think about it in terms of a kind of uh, a triangle where you've got information about what a word sounds like. So you've got its phonological mm -hmm. form got information about what it means and how to use it and all of the kind of semantic information the meaning-based information and then also information about what it looks like so that to me is what word knowledge is it's all three of those things once we can read of course um, and you draw on that that kind of knowledge source every time you read a word every time you say a word every time you listen to a word every time you write a word um, and in the theoretical kind of research literature, we often refer to the, the lexical quality hypothesis. And that really just talks about the nature of those representations, of those um, that stored information about words with those three bits of information. And what the lexical quality hypothesis says is that if we want to be good readers, we need to have lots of those representations and they need to be of high quality. That is, they need to have information about what words sound like, what they mean, and what they look like. And that needs to be really well integrated. And we need to have loads of those representations. And to me, that's what vocabulary knowledge is. It's having kind of deep information and deep knowledge about individual words that's very well specified, that's very well kind of implanted in memory, um, but also having lots of those representations. Um, I mean, there's a slightly different way that I, I've looked at this as well, which I think is really interesting. And there is a really interesting line of research looking at 
learning to read words in English. Now, one of the really challenging things about learning to read words in English is that unlike other languages like Finnish or Italian, we have lots of words that are not spelt the way that they sound. We have lots of inconsistent or irregularly spelt words. So we need to have a range of, of strategies for reading words in the English language. Mm-hmm. So we need to have a really flexible word recognition system that allows us to read words that are spelled the way that they sound, so simple words, um, but also allows us to read words that are not spelled the way that they sound. Um, and what we think we do initially when we encounter a word that is spelled the way that it sounds is we can, if we have good phonic, phonic knowledge already, we can use what we know about the relationship, the usual relationship between spellings and sounds to kind of attack or have a go at reading that word, to effortfully decode that word. Um, and what we think happens over time is that as we repeatedly decode a word, we are able to store it in memory so that we can access it very quickly. We don't have to do this slow decoding process. And that's what Share's self-teaching hypothesis is all about. This is David Share's self-teaching hypothesis. Um, however, if you encounter a word that is not spelled the way that it sounds, that's not going to generate a word, you know, that's not going to generate the right pronunciation. And what we think might happen in that kind of a situation is that you have a go with your phonics knowledge. And actually, for most words, your phonics knowledge or your knowledge of how letters usually relate to sounds is going to get you most of the way. So if you think about a word that's not spelt the way that it sounds, like friend, the fr bit's fine, the nd bit at the end is all fine. You know, your, your knowledge of letter sounds is going to be fine for doing those bits. It's just the tricky vowel bit in the middle basically, that's that's difficult. And what we think might happen there is that you use your vocabulary knowledge, you use your knowledge of the words in the English language that might be, that might start like that and end like that. And you you kind of get to a, 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 a pronunciation that matches to a word that you know. And if you have more vocabulary knowledge, you're more likely to be able to do that. And so that's another reason why we think vocabulary knowledge is really important for word reading. Now, sometimes people refer to that kind of idea or that kind of strategy as set for variability. That's sometimes what people call it. Um, and pronunciation miscorrection as well. Mm -hmm. um, so um, that's another way. So there's lots of things I could say in answer to that. But I think that the, the main point is really that there are a number of reasons why vocabulary knowledge is important for reading words. Mm. It's also important for language comprehension. And it's important for reading comprehension because of kind of both of those pathways, if you like. Mm. It's, it's fascinating that I think that the lexical quality hypothesis you've described for us is really fascinating. And for anybody who's looked at our key stage two guidance reports they might see references to fluency reading fluency as a bridge your description of vocabulary and that hypothesis there also strikes me as a bridge it's that reciprocal way in which growing language comprehension supports the word reading aspects um you know if you're reading a book about um the ocean and you encounter the word yacht if you understand what yacht means you might be more likely to be able to read the word yacht mm. and i think Seems intuitive to say that, doesn't it? But I'm not sure whether that's something that I was fully cognizant of when I was teaching that that power of teaching the meaning and the semantics, as you say, of words to support word recognition. So thank you for that. I just wanted to zoom in, if I can, for a moment on you talked about quality 
uh, vocabulary acquisition quality understanding and deep understanding and I think there is a danger that we sort of view our children as empty slates that we fill with word knowledge and we just do vocab through the word lists the tier two words we really carefully select what what does that incremental approach to vocabulary look like for you Jesse you know progressive deepening of word knowledge I, that's a really important point and I think to me, it means a number of different things. So it is really a really important goal of vocabulary learning or teaching new vocabulary is to expand the vocabulary that our young people have, to make sure that they have lots of words, that they know lots of words. Um, but it is also really important that they have depth in their vocabulary knowledge. So not just knowing lots of words, but also it, it matters what they know about individual words, because that's what's going to allow them to use that word knowledge flexibly across different contexts, across subjects, for example. Um, so knowing about the different senses of the word of words and knowing about the different ways in which we can use words as well. Um, I guess what's also really important to remember is that these these lexical representations, as I call them, or kind of this word knowledge, they're not islands of knowledge. They're all connected to each other. And I think that's really important as well. And, it, it, you know, part of thinking about learning vocabulary or teaching new vocabulary is is taking advantage of those connections that children already have. And I think that has two implications. The first implication is that it, it means that, you know, we should try and uh, develop connections between words for our young people when we're teaching them and, and, and kind of explicitly highlight, you know, similarities and words that go together and words that are different and, and, and that kind of thing. But we also need to remember that if we are teaching new words, uh, we need to be cognizant of the words that our children might not know so if we have a very technical term for example in a chemistry lesson that we're we're wanting to teach and we provide some definitions of that word we need to make sure that children also know all of the words in that definition too and I think there can be a little bit of a risk sometimes I know I do this with my students I mean I teach I guess, big kids, so undergraduate students, and I know I do this, and I'm very conscious of trying to watch myself, is just making sure that that you are uh, remember what they may or may not know. And that also there's going to be huge variation in, in, in my lecture theatre in terms of which words my students know and don't know, and making sure that you're kind of explaining everything in a way that's going to keep everybody with you. So not using technical terms to explain new technical terms, for example. Absolutely. That you sort of making me think now about transition between primary and secondary and, you know, a word like impression that we might encounter in upper key stage two around text, the different ways that that word might be used within art at secondary, mm. for example the polysemy of words and the different contexts so there's there's we could be here for an hour just talking about what this might look like across curriculum but particularly what that looks like at transition and I'm interested in in what you see to be some of those key reflections around this notional slump in vocabulary mm. that, that people have felt um, to be true, but which evidence hasn't necessarily demonstrated to be something which really happens. So what, what are your kind of key findings around what goes on in that jump? So I've 
became interested a while ago in um, whether there might be kind of slumps as children move from primary to secondary school, because in a lot of the work that I've done talking to teachers, there seemed to be a kind of narrative thread there. There seemed to be some expectation that there was a, a slump in terms of vocabulary and also reading knowledge and skills. Um, I was really interested in this. And some years ago, actually quite a lot of years ago, we had a look at the, the literature and found that there wasn't a very good evidence base, really. I think this narrative where it was based on evidence, it was kind of based on evidence where, where like wasn't really compared with like. Um, and one measure of something was being used in primary and another in secondary. And, and it wasn't clear whether there was actually a slump in knowledge and skills or whether it was a kind of artifact of the way that things had been measured over time. And so one of the things that Laura Shapiro and I set out to look at in a, a, rec a recent project um, that we're still working on now is to see if you do measure it like with like, if you are consistent in the way that you measure things over time, um, do you see a vocabulary slump? And um, the other thing we're really interested in is, is there something special about the summer holiday that carries that transition? Or, or is it just the same as any summer holiday um, from year five to year six within primary or from year seven to year eight uh, within secondary? And so we not only measured things in a consistent way, but we also wanted to measure things across the transition summer holiday and also across a non-transition summer holiday. And what we found in terms of vocabulary knowledge is essentially that there was no slump. So the, the change in, in vocabulary knowledge over the transition summer holiday just resembled any old summer holiday. Um, and, and that was really interesting. And I guess what it, it made us think about is, okay, well, why is there this quite strong narrative then? And our hypothesis at the moment really is that the knowledge and skills themselves might not change all that much over that transition holiday, but actually what's demanded of young people changes a lot. And so it's probably more to do with what they're facing than what they bring, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and actually my colleague, Laura Shapiro, put this really, really nicely. It's, it's a transition jump rather than a slump. And I think that is a really nice way of, of understanding it. Yeah, absolutely. Linking back to what you were describing to do with the depth and understanding of the multiple meanings of words and the different academic contexts. And I think that is a really nice way to characterise that, as you say, the jump rather than the slump. So what do you think, just a quick follow up, if I may, what do you think really matters for teachers to know there? Is it thinking carefully about curriculum? Is it thinking actually about something totally different, which is assessment? Or is it thinking about vocabulary teaching across the curriculum? Or, or is it all of those things, Jessie? <laughs> uh, probably a little bit of all of those things. I think the, the most important thing, it seems to me, is just being mindful of what, what young people face in terms of vocabulary. So the vocabulary that is out there in the environment and I guess we're talking about the school environment here. So what are they encountering in the classroom, in the smoke, in spoken language? What are they encountering when they're reading and when they're writing? Um, so just thinking about the language that they need to tackle and remembering that there's huge variation amongst the pupils that you find in a classroom and that not all of those young people will have the vocabulary knowledge that they need to tackle those materials or those contexts. And I think that's the most important thing. In fact, um, and 
I've now conducted two uh, or worked on two large longitudinal studies of vocabulary and reading, where we've looked at how vocabulary and reading change over time in upper primary and secondary. Um, and what we find across both of those studies that is really marked is the sheer variation in knowledge and skills is just huge. And what that says to me is that any teacher standing in front of a, let's say a secondary class that's of mixed ability is faced with a huge challenge. They've got to try and manage the fact that there's so much variation that the, the young people or children or adolescents in their class bring such variable knowledge and skills into that classroom. And that's something that teachers um, have to face every day. Um, and so, I guess that's a really important thing for all of us to remember and that there is some challenge in that. The other thing that comes out really clearly from the research that I think is really interesting is that that variation is so much more marked than any change that happens over time. So any progress. So we do see progress in vocabulary knowledge in upper primary and in, in secondary school. Um, and it probably is important progress that's going to make a real difference to those children. And, you know, um, however, it's, a drop in the ocean compared to the variation that we see. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I think what that tells us is that the knowledge and or the vocabulary knowledge that our kids in year seven have is largely over, overlapping with the vocabulary knowledge that our kids in year nine have. I, th I think that's really important to remember that. So a teacher teaching year seven is, you know, it's got some sense maybe that their, that their class has got a similar range of vocabulary knowledge than their year 10 class, let's say. But actually that the curriculum materials and the concepts that they're having to think about are much, much more complex, of course, in year 10. Um, so I guess from my point of view, those are the important messages. My final question is, given there's a lot still to know, there's a lot we do know, um, but how do we, for a busy school teacher, how do we kind of distill this into relatively simple, manageable, but meaningful advice about vocabulary development? What would your what would your kind of advice be to that teacher about advice around vocabulary development? I think I think in the end, the most important message I think is really, and this applies to my practice as well, is really just to remember that we can't assume that all of our students have um the kind of vocabulary knowledge that they need to access whatever it is that we're trying to teach and that we're always needing to be reflecting on that and checking ourselves to make sure that we're using accessible language um, that's going to speak to everyone and that we are supporting um, students where there might be some, some vocabulary, some gaps in, in their knowledge to make sure that they can still access the content. I think that for me, that's the most important thing. That's great. And, and I think as we move on to uh, our next guest, Marcus, we can kind of probe into his experience. So whether, again, that kind of that's the type of advice that he's, you know, relating as well to other colleagues. So I think that'd be really interesting. Uh, Jesse, thank you for your time and for your expertise, uh, your huge expertise. Uh, it's been really fascinating um, to dig into all of those nuances about vocabulary. It's not that simple kind of solution is it there's there's so many layers to it um, but there's real value in, in in some of the facts you just explored um, and I think teachers will find that really helpful so thank you thank you very much
So I'm really pleased to introduce our next guest. It's Marcus Jones, who is based at Huntington School in York. Uh, Marcus, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, my name's Marcus. I am an English teacher uh, at Huntington Secondary School in York, also leads uh, their Key Stage 3. Uh, previously was a head of department down at a school uh, called Greenshaw, which is also part of the Research School Network. Um, and as well as my teaching work, I'm the literacy lead for the research school here. So do lots of work with primary and secondary schools in the Yorkshire region um, around anything literacy related. Um, and that's particularly why I'm here today. Uh, knowing a little bit of background, um, I know that there's been a really interesting um, project in relation to language and vocabulary that you've undertaken with the research school with Leeds University. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so they approached us uh, during my first year um, and Alice Dignan and her team at the School of Education at Leeds wanted to look into the nature of vocabulary at the transition effectively. Um, and we know that that move from primary to secondary is such a big moment in pupils' lives in terms of sort of an emotional pastoral move. But they wanted to learn a bit more about what, what's the academic shift. And, and they thought vocabulary might be a useful lens through which to, to look at that. Um, they had their hypotheses that there might be a, a slight shift in the nature, perhaps even the quantity of some of the language pupils experience. And so they wanted to try and gather some data around that. And my role uh, on that project is very much um, being to then look at the evidence coming out of it and think about, well, how do we make that practical? What does that mean to te for teachers? Um, what can we do with that information? Is it actually going to enable us to change anything around what we might do in the classroom, both uh, in upper key stage two and in key stage three? So what they did is they set about developing this corpus, so this huge database of words. And they wanted that to be really sort of relevant to actually the language that was happening in school. So they're conscious in the way they collected the data. It's imperfect. It's not this lovely sort of academic sanitized trial. It's, it's got some of the messiness of school in it. Um, and I sort of know that because Huntington was one of the data collection things. Uh, centres and so you know we were having bits of paper that departments were handing us and we needed to scan those in and, and then we had lots of powerpoints and people were handing us textbooks um, and so this real mashup of, of the different uses uh, and sources of language so we were gathering um, words essentially from years five six seven and eight from five secondary schools and eight primary schools and like I say, that was a, a range of different sources. So uh, there were textbooks, worksheets, assessments, PowerPoints. They also looked to gather a spoken language corpus. So this was teacher talk only, uh, with the student contributions taken out, but to give a sense of, of how delivery of lessons changed from a teacher perspective. So they sort of crunched all the numbers and built up this huge corpus. I think it's sitting at around two and a half million words now, which is not insignificant. Um, and then we started to look at some of the trends coming out of that. In terms of sort of the findings at this stage, um, there's uh, a sense, and it's hard to really pin it down to exact numbers, but definite sense of there do seem to be more words that, that pupils experience at key stage three. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that 
they are literally hearing more words, but more different versions of words and different types of words. Um, and we think that might be maybe three or four times as many. But I think most interestingly, actually, is more the nature of the words being used. And so Alice actually sort of introduced me to the term polysemy, that the capacity for words to have multiple meanings. And it seems that that's where there's a really interesting shift. So words which I think it would be easy to make assumptions both for pupils and teachers, they know that word. Um, so an example might be power, uh, and we can hear that in everyday usage. And then you end up with some far more specific subject specific usages. Um, so history would have a particular use of power that would be very different to science. And, and that's where I think there's some interesting things for teachers to reflect on as well. The, I should say that the subjects we were gathering from as well, maths, English, science, history and geography. So across a range of different subject areas as well. We all assume there's increasing complexity as children get older, the language gets kind of harder, and in secondary school there's a bit of a leap. Is that is that what played out? Yeah, so I think that there's obviously complexity at key stage two, and I think it could be too easy to say, oh, there's, there's not complex words at key stage two, there is at key stage three. There's certainly complexity there, without a doubt, uh, at key stage two. But it's almost like then the number of words that might pre uh, present potential barriers seem to increase both in terms of the written materials, it, it, almost how they're presented. Alice was quite struck by almost the density of the written materials, huge amount of PowerPoint slides, which actually wasn't the case for Key Stage 2 as well. So the way that was presented and, and a lot of text on those, and if there was a handout, quite a lot of text on, on those as well. Um, and even in, in teacher talk as well, um, a sense of teachers talking for longer and quicker as well uh, at key stage three than key stage two. So you've got th these complex words, which as a pupil probably feel like they're coming at you even quicker. And you can imagine how overwhelming that must feel as well. Uh, particularly, I think that begins to flag up to practitioners. So if that's happening, how do we make sure that doesn't feel overwhelming for pupils? How do we make sure we maybe cut through that a little bit and amplify a couple of key words uh, above the, the noise of some of those other words as well. And I think that's a really key thing around selection. Um, I think, you know, whenever you're doing vocabulary, regardless of the key stage, to be honest, selection is always really key because there are too many words. You know, whenever I you know, you start talking to a, a year group team or a department team, let's come up with a key word list. Those lists tend to start off very long because you start, oh, that's important. Yeah, that, we think that's useful as well. And all those words, that knowledge is useful. But I think you do have to ultimately make some decisions about how you, like I say, amplify and elevate certain words, because that enables pupils to have hooks and into a lesson and also places to come back to as well, sort of points of sanctuary when you've gone off for a bit and got a bit lost amid some of the other noise, where if you come back to that idea, that's a really key idea for this lesson, for this series of lessons going forward. There's also knowing the language and, and vocabulary of your pupils as well. So lots of like in interesting intricacies. And I think it's why it's such an interesting research study, because it kind of explores things that are really pragmatic challenges. But there's also solutions within there for, for schools as well. Alex, over to you. 
I'm interested in, in picking your brains about that, Marcus. You know, my ears pricked up when you talked about the messiness of school um, and some of these specific uh, sticking points, but also the opportunities around teacher talk, resourcing, perhaps even curriculum design, vocabulary selection. So, so my next question here for you is what what practices are you observing within your teams and the schools that you're working with that speak to some of those challenges or opportunities? So, so what's working well and where are there some further sticking points? It being on schools' agendas, I think, is such a, an important thing. Um, and I think there was, a, there, there was and is a sense of it's a really useful starting point because everyone feels they've got a bit of buy-in to vocab- You can understand I use words in my lesson, regardless of the age you teach, regardless of the subject you teach, words are going to be used in some form. Either you're saying them as a PE teacher out on the tennis courts, teaching them how to do a serve, um, or you're writing them down in history. So I think there's there's a lot of buy-in that you can get from vocabulary, which uh, remains really powerful. Therefore, I think what schools were then very willing to do is think, well, well how do we do something useful around this? Um, And I think that opens up a lot of good discussions around selection, i.e. which words and therefore knowledge seem to matter more um, because we want to elevate those and think that's going to be really key for our learners. Um, And I think schools that do that selection really thoughtfully tend to be more successful. Uh, I'm I'm slightly, um, if when schools sort of just go, oh, we're getting everyone to pick a top 10 words, I, I thought that sort of, why, why 10? Like, just because everything's top 10. Like, and then are we just sometimes pushing it from seven to get to 10 just for the sake of it? So I think that, that thoughtful selection is really key. And then on the back of that, when schools ensure that they think about, well, we've selected those words, so how are we now going to begin to explicitly talk and teach to our, our pupils around those words and go beyond the definition? I think that's really key again. Otherwise, you end up with your top 10 list of words, they're laminated, they're stuck on classroom walls or stuck in kids' books, and that becomes vocabulary. And, and that is where I don't think it's successful. It's probably better than not having those word lists, but if that's all we do, I don't think that's going to be quite enough. So we need to go beyond the definition. And there's lots of different ways you can do that. And again, I think that's where discussions within departments, within year group teams, within or just by class teachers thinking what's going to work well for my group. How am I going to unpack this? Is it through discussion? Is it through a Freya model? However it might be, but making sure that there's a method for unpacking it's really key as well. And then, um, again, I think schools where this is being done well tend to have really thought through or, or, or not made an assumption that we've done that discussion of a word, therefore it's been learnt. They're really aware of the fact that We're going to have to expose pupils to that again. We're going to have to talk through that again. They're going to forget about it and maybe need to see it in a different context to really deepen that understanding. Because ultimately, I think what you have to do and and what is tricky, it's always tricky because a lot of the things we're talking about there about finding time for teachers to do some thinking and resource making. And equally, if you're going to come back to words, that's going to take up curriculum content time. So does that mean you do less of something else? It might well mean that. So you you have to actually consider quite a lot. And I think where I've seen schools be more willing and successful around vocabulary, they've had that understanding that it's not just a quick thing. For the follow-up question, you've talked a lot about teaching the words 
what do you see as being some of the strengths but also the limitations of explicit vocabulary teaching? I think that there's a strength in, in vocabulary in that it is a key element of reading. You know, it sits within the, the, the reading house, uh, for example, that, that you use in the guidance reports. So it does give you a way to begin to address that. Uh, on the sort of flip side, the limitation is there's a lot of other bricks in that reading house as well. So we, we know that it's not going to cover all, all of the bases. Um, I think you've also got the potential, and I've seen this in my own practice, to be honest, uh, around some of the you know, more explicit teaching of vocabulary that I've done, that you end up with a situation where kids know more words and know what they mean, and yet that doesn't follow that they then apply it in their own writing uh, in different contexts. So that can be a bit of a, a, a weakness and a bridge, that it's that sense of, right, I'm going to teach this word, uh, I'm going to check, they know that word, yeah, they do, lovely, and now I'm going to set this essay and it's all going to be fine. Um, and it often isn't. So it's then thinking about, right, so actually how might I bridge some of that into some of my written responses or some uh, oracy work as well? You're describing a kind of sense of um, being alert to the lethal mutations that might happen um, yes. and thinking carefully about implementation. If you only do a bit of vocabulary and it's a, and it's a word wall and it's word of the week uh, or it's that 10 word list, then that superficial aspect of we've done literacy or done vocabulary equally becomes a problem. That's that's the lethal mutation, isn't it? The kind of the, mm. the worst of it. But I think, you know, what you're describing is it's a way in to connect to reading. It's a way in to connect to writing. And I think that leads to my next question, which is, you know, you've talked about some of the work that you've done and, and so I'm probably seeing some of those kind of answers about what might we do next. But if you had this kind of sense of, you know, that broader scope, you know, kind of primary schools, secondary schools across the country, what are, what are your views in terms of how we can move vocabulary development forwards? Is it about connecting it up? Is it about building up those kind of building up the complexity of understanding language and then understanding reading and writing and, and different transition points, et cetera? Even where schools sort of really embrace it and they do the good selection and they find a way to go, go past the definition and they think about how they return to that word. Very rarely, and again, it's often time dependent, is that able to happen like across all your topic areas? So you'll, you'll, you'll start quite understandably, because I think this is the only way to start, is you select a particular year group and a particular topic and, and you look to develop your new approach there and see what works and what doesn't. And, and, and then you get that, that topic quite nicely done. And then you might get another topic quite nicely done. And, and by nicely done, I mean you've done the thinking and crucially the resourcing there as well. Like what goes with it? Like if we are going to teach this word using a Freya model, have we made the Freya model? So we, we've got that to fall back on. And, and very rarely does that then end up with a whole seven years at secondary school for every topic being well resourced around vocabulary. So what you can end up with is sort of this patchiness. So if I was able to take that, if I, and I know to be honest, if I took that bigger picture at Huntington and, you know, Alex, you'll know that the time that we put in around CPD uh, around vocabulary was quite significant, but 
you'd still be able to see patches of that's well resourced and therefore probably better delivered and areas where it's a bit fuzzier. So I'd want to get that big picture of where is it, where is it done well and where is it still a bit vague? And then I think you could zoom out and look even wider across the system there in, in terms of trying to get a clear thread through. So, um, for example, one of the things we tried to do in the English department at Huntington, we've ending up narrowing our sort of selection of words each year. So we end up with these really big concepts, things like morality, uh, things like heroism, which go across several different year groups. Now, we've only thought about that for our key stage three, key stage four, key stage five. We haven't attempted to sort of map that downwards. I'm pretty sure morality, heroism is going to crop up in some of the texts that happen in primary schools. Um, so I think, I think that would be something that would be nice to do. And that's not because you would therefore only rely on just those words. They'd be really key. But that's really powerful, I think, to be able to come back to those ideas and see that sense of progression or development or shift. So actually, when we talk about heroism, we end up talking about anti-heroism as well. And, and, and that sort of development would be nice. So that sort of utopian way of being able to really map it across uh, several different key stages would be would be quite powerful, I think, as well. And then one more thing I'll say is just making sure then there's that that step beyond. All right, we've talked about heroism, lovely. Have we also got the resources potentially to go with it to make sure that they can write about heroism well? That oh, I know what heroism means. Well, can you link that well to talking about Beowulf or whoever it may be? Um, and, and the scaffolds around that would be uh, what I'd want to sort of develop in an ideal world as well. I've got a couple of, of final questions, and they're both quite short. Um, you might be relieved to hear. Um, so the first one is, what's your favourite vocabulary teaching strategy and why? Um, I've got, I feel I'm going to give this is almost more like a politician's answer because I've got a, a Go worried on. answer. But... Well, are you literally just asking my my, my own personal favour? Because then that's such yes. a bias as an English teacher. In a absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. But I do want to acknowledge that that, that would be very different depending on... Okay. I want to we're, cover my yeah. bases on that. We're not, we're, we're not replicating you. But, it's not like a, a matrix scenario. Well, or was, well this is it. So I like the frame model. But why do I like the Freya model, Lance? That might be because I've been influenced by you, and you like the Freya model partly because your daughter's you know, name and all that jazz. But I, I think um, wh what I do like about it is it enables you to go further than the definition, but there's also a neatness to it, like the, the four boxes in terms of replicating, like you can just make four boxes quite easily as well because... Some of the other things that I've tried around um, more sort of, you know, it might be more of a spider diagram, end up feeling a bit looser. And, and it's almost like the word and, and that really core understanding of it, like spider diagram, can get away from you a bit. And you get some interesting conversation and chat and people add to it, but it, it struggles to sort of bring it back. So I like to bring it back to a nice, clear Freya model, but that's because I like things that are nice and ordered. So again, very personal bias. <laughs> yeah, and I think a recognition that, you know, some of our teaching strategies and some of our approaches 
are quite personal and it's about language and communication and, and what we're comfortable doing and and so I think it's important to recognize that there is no one silver bullet strategy yeah. you know, we, we, we know that fact um, so the final question um, what one piece of simple advice would you want a teacher to consider if they're looking to develop the vocabulary of their pupils um, I think don't make assumptions about what they know um, because the minute we do that I think we can because you were talking about you know and I've talked about the importance of selection I think that is really important you, you've got to do some selection and you can do the best selection in the world the world and there'll still be another word that crops up and you, and you need to be aware about the potential for that um, and but not go so far that you're end trying to do every word, like I say, because that becomes unworkable. But it's just that sort of not making assumptions about what they'll understand. And again, to circle back around, I think that's for me probably the most interesting thing coming out of the Leeds project is those polysemous words that you think oh, they'll know that, and they know it in a certain context, and and actually that can be quite dangerous because. Then they go, oh, yeah, I do know what energy means um, because I talk about having no energy in the morning. That doesn't make me ready to discuss that concept in a science classroom. So, yeah, try not to make assumptions about uh, their knowledge and understanding. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, and again, vocabulary being a helpful way to check on assumptions, to get into good quality talk in the classroom yeah. and to kind of ensure that. And if I can just add to that, I've sort of presented that in a, or I feel I said that in a way that assumed that they wouldn't know words. Mm. And that is sometimes the case. But also um, we could make assumptions and, and actually they can sort of disprove them. And go, oh, yeah, they have got some knowledge and understanding around that. And I think you mentioned earlier that sense of enabling pupils to have strategies and, and then realising they, they will be able to bring knowledge to words and language and 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 make links to other areas as well is, is a powerful thing too. Uh, and sometimes you can uh, be surprised by the knowledge that they do have as well. Um, but, but I think that still comes down to not, not making assumptions that they'll know loads or know nothing, just thinking about what, what will they know about it and do, and do we really need to unpick this word a bit more? So that's helpful. So there's, you're saying there's not necessarily a deficit here. It's not about a gap in vocabulary knowledge. Often it's about the kind of funds of knowledge and insights they bring that might surprise us you know, yeah. and prevent kind of teachable moments. Yeah. Well, thank you, Marcus, for sharing your expertise. I think hearing about the different research you've done and, and, and the, those collaborations are really interesting and, and also drawing upon, upon your practice um, and expertise. Okay, that was that was great to hear from Marcus and Jesse, and I, I thought it'd be really useful just to have time for us to reflect on some of those key insights, and then maybe explore them in a bit more depth. So, uh, Alex, what were your um, key reflections from from either Jesse or Marcus, or, or perhaps you're kind of conflating some of those insights from both of them? Um, what stood out for you? A key thing, I think, is that we've this this topic is something that isn't new it's something that we've been talking about and thinking about within the context of literacy teaching and within the context of curriculum design for many years but it, sort of hearing these different reflections has really shifted my own thinking around how we might 
really unpick this idea of a word gap. Of course, there is a word gap. We see it within our classrooms. We see the complexities of how it relates to disadvantage, socioeconomic disadvantage, and kind of the word rich and word poor learners in our classroom. But listening to Jesse and Marcus has made me think about how we might move beyond that deficit model of this word gap and think about incremental vocabulary teaching. Our children, they aren't empty slates. They come to the classroom with lots of different experiences um, and different exposures to language and interactions and texts. How can we view vocabulary learning not as a one-off event, but an incremental process where we're building an understanding of multiple meanings within texts and within different contexts or um, curriculum or, or discipline areas? not just in secondary but from primary too. So for me that key takeaway is around that incremental process of word acquisition and unpicking language and its meaning on a deeper uh, level within texts and within conversation and writing. Yeah that, I think that's really interesting. It, it makes me think about the last podcast where we spoke to colleagues about English as an additional language. I can remember Professor Victoria Murphy talking about um, vocabulary and this kind of rich awareness of language and what children bring to the classroom. Um, and then also the reality that academic English, the language we use in the classroom, is something we need to translate and that every people needs explicit teaching in that. And I, I think that's what struck me about what Jesse and Marcus spoke about too, that there is a difference in the language of our curriculum and vocabulary mm -hmm. is this gateway into the curriculum isn't it it's kind of this kind of manifestation of, of curriculum background knowledge all of these things that people bring to topics they bring to learning um and, and what particularly struck me um jesse kind of punchily kind of uh, described it at vocabulary the transition and this jump not slump and that actually, again, challenging some of that notion of, of what we assume might be happening with people's um, prior language and then thinking carefully about what happens with the curriculum as it changes over time. And, and that jump not slump really struck me in terms of, you know, that's what I saw in the classroom at Key Stage 3, you know, and then you see it in, you know, classrooms that carry on throughout secondary school where the language just keeps on shifting and changing. You know, those individual words, I think the word concentration and how it means one thing in science, but then the general knowledge of that word means something different or prime in mathematics. And so many examples were the language we use to describe the curriculum, the language we use to describe um, academic knowledge is highly specialised. So that jump, not slump, for me, captured that kind of nice reality that teachers have to understand where the curriculum makes jumps, where pupils might have those gaps in knowledge and understanding. And I, and I think in that incremental point you talked about feels like this point about, okay, well, we could choose five words to teach for a topic, but we need to think a bit more subtly about the different approaches for explicit teaching, how we might give pupils those kind of word, independent word learning strategies and, and areas for development and how this all needs to work in concert together and you know vocabulary for talk vocabulary for writing identifying tricky vocabulary when we're reading so it feels like a nuanced picture um mm -hmm. and, and i we got it captured really nicely by by jesse and marcus thinking about next steps of vocabulary what for you is that kind of um, desirable next step so I, I think we've both discussed this kind of 
you know, moving beyond isolated activities or or kind of almost kind of unthinking routines um, around vocabulary. What what do you think's the desirable kind of best practice um, that we'd like to see? It's really tricky, isn't it? When we start to get pragmatic around what this might look like, if you're you're listening to this as a school leader or you're listening to this in relation to your own practice as a teacher, what would this look like when you start to take it live and and start to make some of those pragmatic choices and, and build in rich routines into your practice. So there's absolutely value in using those routines, um, whether it's breaking down morphology and thinking about word learning strategies, or whether it's thinking about using frame models as do now activities, that, that we keep doing that where we're seeing that to be beneficial. But there's a next step for me here, which is thinking about how vocabulary now links to the rest of the, the kind of art of learning to read um, so if we think about the reading house, that representation that, that we've referred to in the podcast of the different components that make successful reading comprehension, I'd like to explore within my own schools, my own practice now, how vocabulary is another entry point into that house beyond the door. So how vocabulary unlocks parts of the, the word reading wing of the house and think about how picking up on what Jesse's sort of explained, that lexical quality hypothesis, how vocabulary and the meaning of words might support word recognition, but also how vocabulary then opens up the inferencing room or comprehension monitoring so that we are, as you say, Alex, not just thinking about vocabulary as a series of isolated activities or something we can tick off that we're doing in air quotes, which you can't see, but instead we're thinking about vocabulary as something which is intrinsically connected to all the other parts of, of that process of learning to read, that it's part of the cognitive processes themselves of understanding phonology or understanding inferencing, and that it therefore helps to cement the rest of the house together. So I think that's where I'd like to see kind of practice moving and where I'd like to see more research, how, how sort of that explores that connection between vocabulary and the other cognitive processes involved in, in making a good reader. I mean, I feel like I'm going to twist that brilliant final answer um, and say I wholly agree about connecting up vocabulary within the reading house. It's one of those bricks. So you've got reading fluency. Um, and how I'm going to twist it is obviously you need to now go and listen if you haven't already to the Evidence Interaction podcast on reading fluency. Listen to all the podcasts if you get a chance. And of course, um, subscribe. And we look forward to joining you again um, in a few weeks' time for our next podcast. Um, Alex, thank you for the discussion. Uh, and everyone else, thank you for listening. Thanks, Alex.